What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. It's publishing day for our guest, Stephanie Dickinson, and her true crime creative nonfiction story, Razor Wire Wilderness. It's published by Callista Gaia Press, and we'll give you a heads up that true crime is often tough and it's sometimes gruesome. The story is about Crystal Royerden, who is serving a maximum 30-year sentence as an accomplice to murder, while the man, her boyfriend, pimp, and perpetrator, who beat a teenage woman, Jennifer Moore, to death, is about to be released from prison. Studies show that more than 80% of women who fail to stop their partner from committing a violent crime serve more prison time than the perpetrator does. Stephanie Dickinson asks, what does it take to survive in a maximum security lockdown for 30 years? And is it possible to thrive? Welcome, Stephanie. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much, Diane. It's great to be here. Where are you speaking to us from? Where have you been in COVID lockdown? I've been in COVID lockdown in New York City, the uh, East Village of Manhattan, um, in a five-floor walk-up with with my partner and my cat. And um, sounds we're hoping fun. Things are are improving now. Yeah, it sounds as though they are, and um, I hope uh, that it's given you time to focus on your writing, and this is an exciting day for you. The book is coming out, uh, and we're here to talk about it, and we'll take a deep dive. You say that it is about the way we live when we're caged, be that literally or figuratively, and the beckoning light of, human, the beckoning light of genuine human connection. So, Stephanie, you've written many crime stories and books. Tell us about your goal in writing this particular book. I, I think I wanted to um, um, understand what happened in that room between um, two women of, sim- of, of similar ages, one 18 and one 20, and that was my original impulse in, in um, entering this story and, and getting to know Crystal. And the more I learned about uh, the Edna Man Correctional Facility for Women in Clinton, New Jersey, and the more I understood about Maximum Compound and the inmates there, the more I was astonished at uh, a humanity that we all shared together. And I think I really wanted readers and myself to experience not just the harrowing side of um, what brought a lot of these women to Maximum Compound, um, gritty, gruesome crimes, but how much uh, I shared with them as a, as a, as a human being. And um, so when we're caged, um, figuratively, as we were, um, as we are in our everyday lives, and then it became um, actually literal under lockdown, um, it was it was something that I really began to understand that enclosure feeling of yes. um, 
and and that I saw was 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 uh, such a was a, a match with what was going on in in the MCF. It is it is a powerful story. So the eighteen and twenty year olds refer to Jennifer Moore, who was eighteen at the time of her death, and the twenty year old is Crystal Royerden, who was an accomplice to murder. Um, and when you talk about in that room, there was a hotel room, and um, the perpetrator, Dre Coleman, um, was also in that room. Um, you you were inspired when you, if that's the correct word, or motivated, let's say. I, I personally was quite also triggered by this story. Um, I think that what you're saying about finding commonalities is is all too true in the sense that, you know, we think to ourselves, well, thereby the grace of God go we, because these things can happen, unfortunately, to almost anyone. I wondered why this story in particular, when you read it in the newspaper the first time, grabbed you, wouldn't let you go. What is compelling about this story for you? Uh, what was so compelling about the story was uh, it, it resonated with me as something that happened in my own life. Um, I was shot when I was 18 years old at a, at a party, and uh, that resulted in a, in a, a a lifelong disability uh, with my left arm. And Jennifer was 18 years old when she made this a mistake that would, would take her life. Uh, it was one night, one mistake that had these incredible consequences and for Crystal, too, with her uh, life in so many ways um, ruined or, or, or changed by a 30-year prison sentence. One night... And an impulsive uh, direction uh, a young woman took and walked into this fate. And I guess it reminded me so much of, of my own mistake that led to a lifelong consequence that I just um, was gripped by. And I felt myself, as I learned more about Crystal, I felt like I was, they were two women and I was, and they were half, one half of each of them was me. And uh, I had so much empathy for Jennifer and, and, uh, and then later Crystal too. And uh, that, that the age and the dangerousness of, of a certain age uh, for women um, that makes you vulnerable because you think you are, you know, nothing will ever happen to you and you take this road. So that was really um, what, what wouldn't let me go. That was one thing. And the second thing was I could not understand why Crystal did not help Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Um, that it was just the sticking point. I couldn't. I, I called her in a short story, "The Girl Who Watched," and that was before I I I, I, I knew her. But um, that girl who watched, you know, that haunted me. Yes. The girl who watched. It is haunting. Um, you formed a. Uh, prison communication and friendship with Crystal in the 15 years that she's been incarcerated. And I think that um, for listeners to understand a little bit, um, you unfortunately were in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people when you were 18 years old. Um, You had been brought up in a very conservative uh, background and um, sort of in the, you know, summer of love when you took off and rebelled and hitchhiked, um, 
to meet a boyfriend, um, Michael, you wound up at a party uh, with an angry, um, thwarted suitor whose house it was, um, and he owned a shotgun. So I wonder for you, when you talk about these pivotal moments, these days that change your life, in your life with your paralyzed arm, and I know that you work as a word processor um, for an accounting firm, um, I, I wonder, do you think about that day over and over, or do you go about your business? And how often does it resonate with you yourself? You know, it's something that um, uh, having a disability is something that you have to deal with every single day. I, I, have, I love life. I have done, I think, a lot with my life. But uh, you can't escape um, what you need to do in a two-armed world with one arm, and, and you find you, you, you overuse the one working limb that you do have. And um, also, I have chronic pain because it's a neurological um, accident which damaged the nerves in my, my shoulder and neck while I was shot. So I, I'm in um, um, pretty much chronic constant pain. So I'm all, I, I can't really put it too far to the back of my mind. It's, it's always there in this sort of burning way. And, um, and yet, I love life and I do, and I do um, go through my day. So I do both of those things at the same time, really. But um, so because of that, that it's always sort of present, I'm very, very sensitive to these kinds of stories and to this age where, where I really empathize not just with women but with young men and and people that are not binary this age where you do you do make these kinds of mistakes but um I love that you say that you experience both each day, the pain and the love of life. And, you know, I think you've, you've hit on a point there. Age 18, we're invincible. What can happen to us? Taking risks seems so uh, logical at the time. So, but I also wonder in a strange way, and I don't know if you agree with me, but I, I wonder when you say about life hinging on these moments for Crystal Royerden, who was the bystander to this murder of Jennifer Moore, was, was her becoming incarcerated actually a way that might have transformed her in a way that she wouldn't have been? And was she on a destructive path that could have gone even worse? We can only speculate. She had, I mean, tragically, a, a lifetime of abuse. She she grew up, um, you know, neglected early on by um, an addicted mother. She and her sisters were um, put up for adoption through the foster care system, and um, she was later abused um, in several scenarios. It seemed as though she was a vulnerable personality, and she had sustained some, let's say, emotional damage. Um, along the way. And I just wonder, you know, when you think about this kind of outcome for Crystal, it's terrible and she has been incarcerated. She's befriended you. What do you think are the chances that she will turn around? What do you think the chances are that her life would have just continued to go horribly wrong while she was a prostitute and 
in love with the perpetrator of this murder. You know, I don't think that it would have, if she had been with someone other than Draymond, it might not have gone to this to this extreme. I mean, I don't think she had, what I know of her, she's a very kind person. Um, but but she is, and at that point, really uh, impressionable, or, or um, because she went to the Elan school for four years, I think she learned to be passive. She learned to put up with a level of violence because that therapy there is is attack therapy where you weaponize the students um, who are troubled teens from the from all over the, the United States um, to scream at each other and to commit these acts of, of verbal verbal violence and I think um, I think that she became a little callous there or her personality type couldn't handle uh, four years of that, and she was used to seeing extreme things and being passive. And and I think that she uh, was under Draymond Coleman's um, orders. He she was in love with him, but he was abusive, and he was a control monster. And um, I didn't mean to use that word, but really, he 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 did have that quality. And and. So when she was in the situation where she needed to make a choice, where she needed to run from that room and get help, she was passive. Mm-hmm. And um, that quality of her could have led to a worse and worse outcome as time went along. So this this arrest, and, and after the arrest, she did help the police with... Um, with, with Lo- locating case. him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, locating yes, and locating him. So, so um, there was that. But again, she was under the now she was under the control of the police, and so whoever was in authority, she obeyed. Right. I mean, I think that is an interesting point. I, I really, it, it is a point of um, compassion for Crystal that she kind of came to, but also a point of compassion that. Um, if you are an infant and you suffer from neglect, when the child welfare system people picked up Crystal and her sisters, they hadn't been bathed. They were starving. They had been horribly neglected. And neglect, even childhood trauma of, of physical, uh, you know, terrible trauma, is not as severe on the um, neurological regulatory system as neglect is because it is simply incomprehensible and it goes on indefinitely. So there is a large degree in which her shutdown, um, her amygdala, you know, her neurological responses and her emotional responses were already compromised. I mean, to the point where if she maybe undergoes um, an understanding of how this happened, what happened to her, that she might be able to sort through all of this. I agree with you. She was passive as the result of the Elan School, which for those listeners um, who don't recall, it's where Michael's, uh, Mike, where, where the Kennedy clan um, heir was shipped off, Michael Skakel, for, for beating his uh, another Jennifer beating his na- neighbor Jennifer Moxley with a uh, golf club, bludgeoning her to death in a Tony suburb, um, you know, in the Northeast. And it's a school that had a sort of sadomasochistic um, philosophy. And they ritualized this with kids. And, you know, they had to 
drink the lake water and hold it in their mouths until they returned to the camp. I mean, there were just horrific things. They couldn't go to the bathroom when they wanted to. Um, there was, yeah, screaming. Nobody could endure this kind of thing without going a little bit nuts yourself. And, you know, Jennifer, I mean, uh, sorry to say, Crystal also said she preferred um, incarceration to the Elon School, which is now defunct. Thank goodness. Um, and I'm glad you, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you've, you've brought that up. Do you feel as though um, Crystal is getting, we're, we're going to take a look at this, um, <laughs> the prison situation. I'm sorry, it's bleak. But do you feel as though she's getting any kind of therapy that might be helpful to Crystal in terms of rehabilitating herself? You know, I think she's getting some, um, unfortunately, because of the privatization of the prison system and, and um what happens? Uh, the rehabilitation models a little bit uh, getting a little bit under stress in our prison. She's not getting a lot, but I think she she has taken classes which have been extremely extremely helpful, and she's done quite well uh, in 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 uh, lit- they're mainly in literature. Um, and she has she does have a history of cutting, um, and and it took. Um, it took a lot of effort and a lot of outside people's help to get her into into therapy in 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 uh, the prison. So so she's gotten some, and um, but especially from the educational aspect of it. And they do have group therapy, but I think the individual therapy sessions they're a lot more difficult to arrange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to compliment you on that point about uh, bringing up crystals. Um, the neglect of, of Crystal and her sisters because um, she was told at one of her therapy sessions in, in the prison that she did have that attachment, uh, that she didn't really have a mother in the beginning. And so there's something that um, never really came alive, mm-hmm. and, and she recognizes that. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. It's heartening because I think if she explores that, she will understand the ways in which um, this is something that happened to her. And there are ways that, you know, for the rest of your life, you have to recover from that. Um, and it could become a constructive journey. I also just feel very thankful to you, uh, Stephanie Dickinson, for writing this book, Razor Wire Wilderness, for bringing to light a lot of these issues and the environment of prison itself. Um, we are going to take a look at the fact that Draymond um, Coleman got a 50-year sentence and is about to be released, while Crystal Warden got a 30-year sentence and she'll be serving five more. Let's think about the justice there and uh, let's talk about it some more with Stephanie Dickinson. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. 
The aim is to serve riders who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Stephanie Dickinson, and there's a lot to unpack in this story. While we were at the commercial break, Stephanie, you mentioned to me that there might be an inaccuracy in some of the reports that have gone out that Draymond Coleman, in fact, is not about to be released. What's the update on his status? I believe he was transferred uh, from the prison he was in to Rahway, which is which is uh, more of a um, maximum uh, security prison because of some um, um, trouble that he was in at, at, at where he was being held. And I, I don't think he's going to be... He's going to probably have to do 85% of his sentence before release. Um, but there was, you know, there were rumors of, of that he was about to be released. And, and I think that um, I asked... I don't think that's... I, before I checked online and from Crystal, um, I don't think that's, that's um, the case. I think he's going to be there for a while longer, yes. Let's talk about the motivations that Crystal has. Um, There has been communications, yes, or have there been communications between Crystal and Draymond in some way? There's been some, and uh, I don't think Crystal knows that Draymond gave testimony against her um, Mm -hmm. at at his penalty trial or Previous to that, uh, they were facing um, capital punishment uh, shortly after they were arrested. And then uh, the state of New Jersey, uh, it was deemed unconstitutional. So um, they no longer had that to fear. But they were, you know, life imprisonment. And and um, to get his plea deal, uh, Draymond gave testimony against Crystal. I don't think she's ever known that or when I've hinted at something like that, I don't think she can accept that. Um, He has promised to exonerate her, to give written testimony that she had nothing to do with with the kidnapping and murder of Jennifer, but he has never made any move to do that. Um, He has written her uh, about a number of times and sent some birthday cards and Crystal has sent me those letters. Yep. And, and I was astonished at how perfect his handwriting was. Mm-hmm. Um, like he might, beautiful he might, penmanship. Mm-hmm. Like he might be a sane person. Um, I'm wondering. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering about this. Uh, the idea that first of all they they were under capital punishment at one point, um, a capital crime. What was the motive for killing Jennifer Moore? You know, this is, I think, uh, Draymond had a reputation 
for, and, and this is the trigger warning area, he had a reputation for liking threesomes. Mm-hmm. And he wanted, uh, and Crystal is, is uh, um, you know, is, is, is bisexual. And he, he was always looking for threesomes. And when he saw Jennifer stranded walking along a West Side Highway trying to get back home because their car had been towed, he talked her into the cab. And I think he was hoping to have a threesome. And he convinced her to enter this very, very shabby rent-by-the-week week room in Weehawken, New Jersey. And she didn't want to go in. I think Crystal helped calm her to come into the room to recharge her cell phone, which was a lie. There was no recharging uh, the cell phone in the room. And once she was in the room... And then I think Raymond uh, started to make sexual advances on her, and she fought. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is, this is what the detective said and what, what um, we've learned, that she fought um, extremely hard. She scratched Raymond, and um, Raymond had been up all night or two nights and doing cocaine, according to Crystal, and she said he snapped. And mm-hmm. once... Jennifer started scratching him. He went berserk, went into the berserker stage and started beating her. And I think once the beating started, that it, he was on, he was a murder machine. You know, he couldn't stop himself. Or and so that motive was something. You know, he was a foster care child. The motive was something from his own his own past and his own his own you know nature is a violent nature. Um, so yes. really, it was there was no motive besides you know wanting to take sexual advantage of this girl and her resisting him. Okay, um, so let's say you know Crystal was a sex worker. She um, Draymond was her pimp, and this was a threesome gone terribly wrong. And in a way, it was a rape gone terribly wrong. Right. Um, and and I think that now we have. Um, we have Draymond with his, you know, you use the word monster. I don't think that's far-fetched. But he also had another side. He was fueled at this moment by cocaine. And as you say, he snapped. He went beyond, you know, any human um, capacity. And he ended this girl's life. So when I'm triggered by this story, it is Jennifer walking down West Side Highway because I lived in Manhattan and there were evenings where, you know, you couldn't find a cab and you'd be on the lower, you know, the, the west side. And, you know, if you came out of a gallery opening or something. And, and, and honestly, I could just picture this, except maybe Jennifer was a good bit more drunk. She'd been out clubbing. Um, it's a vulnerable place for a young woman. It's a place where you are prey. And there is that sense of, you know, you hear the clicking of the, you know, heels on the sidewalk and Draymond's coming after her. It was really harrowing um, for me. And I think that makes it complex, right, Stephanie? It makes it very complex to, you know, we do feel, let's say, you know, it's hard. Your sympathies are, it's so revolting, the crime. There's so much revulsion. And now we have Crystal in prison in New Jersey, and she has never 
forsaken Draymond Coleman. She has never really spoken against him out of a sense of loyalty, which he has not reciprocated. I feel as though, you know, her, her world at some point is going to shatter again, right? Because she is now, I mean, I guess my real question is, do you think she doesn't forsake him out of loyalty or is it out of fear? Because he could potentially in some way endanger her again if she were to emerge from prison. Yeah, that is a question I'm not sure of. Uh, It could be a mix of both. But but I think that um, she feels... She said, I, I, I know I shouldn't write him back, but, but um, he has no one else. But that's not true either. He has his mother, and he has a, a children from other women, and he has other women that write him. And, and um, so she's, this is some, some kind, you know, we, we blind ourselves in just certain ways. You know, I think we all do, but this is like a, a blind spot for her that that somehow she is still the one for him. Um, I don't think that she's in love with him anymore. I, I don't know. But but there is. Um, she has never, never really um, said anything really horrible about him except that he beat her or um, was violent with her when they were together or... But she's never really um, said anything to me. You know, um, her friend Lucy has said horrible things about him. And uh, so that, that's a question. I think in some ways she's looked at Draymond as her mother. Mm-hmm. Somehow this, he gave her the love that she, this impossible love that she never got from her mother. She... she, she transferred onto him. I know that sounds peculiar, but in my knowing her, I've, I just keep coming back to that. I think you're probably spot on with this, and you think about the Charlie Manson girls, you think about the people who carried out the Sharon Tate murders, this obsessive cult-like figure, as you say, Draymond has fathered other children, um, I, I, I think that there, there is an essence to that, some sort of um, figure of love figure, let's say. Um, but let's, I'm going to set Draymond aside, and really I like to set him aside just sort of permanently in my mind, um, and focus on Crystal. Um, she did find love in, or a kind of, uh, let's say, in bonds of affection inside prison um, where she formed a a relationship with a woman called Lucy Weems, who you also corresponded with. And this has been over the course of, what, 15 years now that you've been corresponding? It's really um, since, it wasn't exactly from the crime, it's it's about nine years actually, nine years with Crystal and um, about seven years with Lucy. Mm-hmm. And and now Lucy has been released, and 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 we we email almost every day. So, and how is your correspondence with Crystal? Is she, uh, is she? What's her state of mind currently? Is she hopeful for release? Obviously, is she fearful upon release? Does she have ideas about what she might like to do upon release? 
What are her goals? You know, I, do, I don't think that she's really thought about it. I think she's really um, an institutionalized person in many ways because she's been in EMCF over 15 years or and before that Elon and and Draymond so she's she's has not spent that many years in freedom on her own and so um, you know I'm I'm concerned about her I'm concerned about what the future holds at one point she said she'd like to uh, counsel young women that are, are entering prostitution uh, and use her experience there, which is a good idea, but a lot of these things take training and, and some um, foresight. So I think that her world has been so minute-to-minute, commissary order to commissary order, um, love relationship to love relationship, so in the moment that the notion of being released doesn't is, is abstract somehow to her because um, you know there are a lot of a lot of services for for uh, inmates being released and and I'm hopeful that um, that um, you know that these will help point her in the right direction and I'm certainly going to help her and and there are other people that have um, have seen some of this writing online about Crystal and have reconnected with her so mm-hmm. she is there is a support network out there um, that we're, we're willing to help her when she gets out well I'm I'm I was extremely fearful of the idea of Crystal emerging in the world unprepared to deal with it um, because it's true that she has never not been under the spell or the confines of something. And um, the fact that she, you know, persists in in a kind of an obsession um, with her former lover and pimp as a sex worker also concerns me. The recidivism rate for sex workers is relatively high. Um, Crystal was not a drug addict, um, so she wasn't financing her drug usage. She was actually financing Draymond, um, which is more, even more nauseating in a way. Um, but at least she didn't get involved with drugs. But here is going to be a woman who is going to need an extreme support system for sure. And maybe even not complete freedom for a, a while until she is bolstered and, and buffeted and strengthened in so many ways, which is going to take a long time. Um, I'm, glad, I'm glad of your support and um, I'm glad of your book. Razor Wire Wilderness. You got to the point of talking about the pr- privatization of the prison system. Are prisoners exploited under this current system? You talk about phone calls that talk, that cost like three dollars and fifty six cents. I mean, talk about some of the ways in which being inside is also exploitive. Uh, you know, I think uh, under the new models, you know, uh, prisoners. Are, are looked at to be monetized, and they are. Um, so to, to imprison more people um, works well for the shareholders. That, that's just a general uh, thing to say, but, and, and a little bit, you know, facetious. But, but there is something in that. Um, it's expensive and, and exploitative of the, of the um, in, inmates and of their families, particularly. Um, 
that that um, putting everything is under certain corporations like Horizon and, and JPay and Global Net uh, Link. So you have to go through these large, you know, corporations um, to send money, to make phone calls, to have video visits, and and they're all monetized. So the the families are often, you know, when I uh, used to um, call with use Global Telink, it's quite expensive, and you get ten dollars worth of of of. of Phone call and three dollars for the charge, and and um, so and and with JPay, that's um, JailPay, uh, a computerized system where the family or friends can uh, download money into to the inmate's account uh, electronically, and to send twenty dollars, you're going to be charged like three dollars and sixty five cents, and uh, at one point. If you go over to forty, it becomes like six dollars. So, so these things are are very prohibitive to people that that don't have a lot of money, and and we've often talked about prison being often impacting people that that are are middle class and, and or lower middle class. That that these these charges are are particularly onerous. So. There is something going on, you know, the medical, which is really needs to be looked at, I think, in across the country, but truly at at, uh, at the Man Correctional Facility in Clinton. Um, and that also, the, the inmates are charged for their health uh, insurance, a very low rate, but still um, for them, it is a lot. Right. And will they get medical attention when they need it? That's a big question mark. Um, certainly Lucy didn't. Um, I think the fact that, you know, you're shipping, say you're transferring $20. So a box of tampons in prison costs around $7. So there's, um, okay, so now we've got, you know, $15 left and the, the phone you know, and the usury rate for sending that money, you know, this is without getting your Doritos or, you know, your chips, your vending machine sandwich or whatever, and per month. And so then the usury rate, if you went on to an ATM machine and the usury rate were $6, you'd be upset. But, you know, this is a routine way of uh, capitalizing, as you say, on, you know, the monetary system. In prisons, it's just another dimension to this whole story, uh, and one in which, you know, love and human connection um, falls further and further down the down the ranks. But I think it was a salvation for Crystal and maybe even the friendship with our guest. Stephanie Dickinson. We have to pause for a commercial break right now, but when we come back, we're going to talk about this book. Razor Wire Wilderness and how a creative work of nonfiction te- tells the truth and what we need to learn next. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, 
and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Stephanie Dickinson, who was raised on an Iowa farm, now lives in New York City with the poet Rob Cook and their feline, Vallejo. Her novels, Half Girl and Lust series, are published by Spite and Dival, as is her feminist noir, Love Highway. Other books include Heat, an interview with Jean Seberg from New Michigan Press, Flashlight Girls Run, New Meridian Arts Press, and The Emily's Fables. She received distinguished short story citations in Best American Short Stories, Best American Essays, and numerous pushcarts anthology citations. Her stories have been reprinted in New Stories from the South, New Stories from the Midwest, and Best American Non-Required Reading. In 2020, she won the Bitter Oleander Poetry Book Prize, and TBO has brought out Blue Swan, Black Swan, The Trackle Diaries, Her Razor Wire Wilderness, is a true crime memoir based on her longtime correspondence with inmates at the Edma, Edna Mahon Correctional Facility for Women in Clinton, New Jersey. Uh, it's to be published by Callisto Gaia Press as we speak, and launch date is just about now. So to get it, you can go on Callisto Gaia Press website, and then it will be available wherever books are sold. To support her writing habit, which she calls the Holy Flow, uh, Stephanie has long labored in the cub- cubicle world, and since the outbreak of coronavirus, she has been working remotely in the sanctity of her fifth floor walk-up. Along with Rob Cook, she edits Rain Mountain Press. Stephanie, it's wonderful having you. I wonder if you would shed some light on creative nonfiction, what that really means. You have obviously extensively researched your subject, but what's the creative aspect of it? I, I think that, you know, I, I was torn uh, because usually creative nonfiction does have a, a lyrical element to it or, or tries to expand the language component uh, a little more than, than uh, a nonfiction that, that is less creative. So that was a, a struggle for me, trying to get the right balance of uh, a little bit more lyricism in a dark subject, um, and or or a, a crime, a crime um, novel, a true crime uh, book that that is a little bit more repertorial or journalistic. So, so I think the creative aspect of it does try to to lift it to to another to to um, I wouldn't call it a hybrid, but using fictional elements. Mm-hmm. Um, 
recreative elements in, in a piece of uh, nonfiction more than a more journalistic approach would be. Well, there's an aspect of beat poetry almost to the book. There's a lot of it is um, sensual and uh, alluring even in terms of some of your descriptions because there is a lot of um, contact, physical contact, not the violence aspect, but the aspect of connection, the human connection. Um, and uh, I wondered about the, the you know, you've, you've been up for some push cards here. So has your partner, Rob. Um, and there seems to be uh, the, a, a role in, of poetry in your writing. Does it help you process some of the darker, deeper emotions, I wondered? I think so. I think that um, in some ways, like humor, there's certain techniques you use to, to, cut, to cut a certain darkness with. And, and I love language. I, I love the spoken word. I love the written word. And, and each word um, can be a unique and beautiful thing. And so working with language, um, and, and that I find that very thrilling, I think uh, cuts some of the... Uh, the grittiness or the the darkness that would maybe really uh, pull your human spirit uh, apart. Really, that this is this is more of a healing kind of an act to to try to bring some beauty into something that might not um, uh, lend itself to that naturally. I think that it it, it is it's a healing aspect. I agree, and I wondered then. Um, whether for you personally as an author, having experienced a traumatic gunshot wound, do you feel from your own transformation uh, in writing the book, do you feel that um, it's helped you in terms of uh, finding value in your experience or even forgiveness in your experience? Absolutely. I think that, you know, there are a lot of wonderful writers out there and a lot of uh, writers, and we're all striving to to create something beautiful, uh, to bring kind of an order to sometimes our very chaotic lives. And um, it's, a, it's a worthy pursuit, I think, a really worthy pursuit for us all. And um, I found it... Um, extremely beneficial to me as a, a person with a, giving a direction and, and a hope and um, just, just an excitation about uh, reading and writing uh, and the written word. Well, I'll, I'll give viewers uh, and listeners um, an idea of what the tender aspects were. You pointed out the dynamics in the prison where... Um, groups of inmates will call themselves mother or daughter or sister or aunt and refer to themselves as a kind of family nucleus, perhaps in the absence of ever having had one. And I thought that that was remarkably touching, if you will. And there was a another aspect where it seemed as though the love between inmates bordered on possession, a kind of a proprietary, your mind. Um, many, many of the inmates, the female inmates had been sex workers and had been objectified and created as stuff long before they even entered prison. I wonder if you can just talk to me a little and talk to our listeners about this balance between the tenderness and the toughness. When we first approached one another about talking, you 
you made mention of the fact that there's considerable softness inside prison. Talk about that balance, if you would, please. I, I find it... Um I, this was another thing that surprised me. You know, Crystal's often asked me to send an email from her to another and another inmate, and then another inmate emails me. And I'm surprised at how much I love you, I miss you, I'm there for you. And these are friends. These are just friends. And this is uh, the I've never seen the word love used so much as I, I've seen inmates use. Uh, so I, I was surprised by that, and I was surprised by the intensity of of these friendships, um, and not just the ones that are, are are relationship friendships, but friends that that um, and and a real caring, you know, sharing commissary or sharing toilet paper or. Um, you know, things that in the outside world uh, we might be much less likely to do. Um, mm-hmm. I don't tell my neighbor who I'm friends with I love her, but in prison it would be, you would do that. Um, yes, and why not, you know? Um, I wonder if it's been particularly satisfying for you to have the friendship with Crystal as a result. Yes, I, I, I think so. Um, you know, I think very definitely, and I think that... Uh, you know, we've known each other long enough that that um, if she needs something, she doesn't really need to give me a reason for it. I, 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 I if I have it, I'll help her. And um, uh, I, I think that that um, she considers me family in in some way, and I've made a commitment to her. And and I would never have imagined it when I first saw her picture on the cover of the newspaper that she would be some sort of family to me that I, I in some ways felt responsible for um, uh, a commitment to, a commitment to. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was very interesting what you said about that balance between giving and possession in in prison because often the, the intensity of the friendships or the love relationships, there is component for jealousy and and things can you know erupt into into um, into, into into fights and things are never in the violence of the men's prison but but it is there too well it's something where uh, you know this this kind of um, predilection you know we have to really understand uh, and take responsibility for our own actions on the outside it's it's harder to do when the deck is stacked against you on the inside. And I think that maybe, you know, your influence as a person who, who does have to live their life responsibly is hopefully um, also very important for Crystal. I'm sure that it is. You, you have written um, other books, Jean's uh, uh, Sebring, and also you express an interest about Jean Harlow, who said that to me, love has always meant friendship. Um, I thought that was a, a kind of an apt um, quote to apply to your relationships with Crystal and her dear friend Lucy. We don't have much uh, time left, but you um, have a snippet from your book, and I'd love people to just hear your language. Um, if you want to read and sort of lead us off with um, a sample of your writing, Stephanie. 
this is just uh, this is a little bit gritty, but this is when Lucy, who who has been released from prison, it's a few paragraphs uh, when when she's leaving EMCF. The day arrives and Lucy's product awake at 4 a.m. and told to dress and stow her toiletries in a brown bag. Not even an hour later, a shackled and cuffed Lucy walks to the waiting van and clams in back. The sun is just rising. Lucy faces the window, and as the watchtowers of the MCF disappear, she feels oddly nostalgic. Seven years. Goodbye, Crystal, my friend. I liked it best when we lived right next to each other. Goodbye to you and I laughing crazily. Goodbye to the Lucy Weems who tied up her drug dealer and held a gun to his head. Goodbye to the idiots who stole the microwave and tried to hide it in their room under a sheet. To no ketchup on hot dog day. No chicken bits in the casserole on chicken casserole day. To one half cup boiled carrots for dessert and one hot dog bun. Goodbye to mail at the mercy of the officers, fingering your letters and tasting your hand-painted cards. Good riddance to spot inspections. To doorless poops behind a shower curtain. To 11 women sharing a sink. To five minutes in the kiosk to send an email. Goodbye to lock and the cage. To toothaches and thankless extractions. To thin, hardly their mattresses and black mold. Goodbye for four days and begging to be checked out. Goodbye to bend over, squat and cough. Goodbye to doggy wagons. Goodbye to the marked, the mugshot, the hands that curl into fists and meaty arms that travels with dragons and Tweety Birds. Goodbye. Thank you, Stephanie Dickinson. It's been a real pleasure. There's lots we could talk about, but unfortunately our time has come to a close. And thank you for reading from your beautiful book, Razor Wire Wilderness. You can find Stephanie at LinkedIn on Facebook, Stephanie Dickinson 186, Callisto Gaia Press, and um, Rain Mountain Press on Twitter. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Tiolino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe. And remember, we are our brothers and sisters keepers. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.